Absolutely. This is the first presidential election where climate change emerged as a top tier issue. And a lot of that was because Biden as a candidate chose to do that. He chose to bring it up. And so it is clear that the political calculus had changed on that. Um, you know, that the that the campaign advisor saw it as something that would at least not drive away voters and could it could attract and excite other voters. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program and our project on climate agreements. It's now more than two weeks since the November 3rd election and 11 days since the Biden-Harris ticket was declared the victor in the Electoral College by all of the major news media, but President Trump still refuses to concede Uh, citing what I understand have been totally discredited claims that the election was fraudulent. But while related litigation continues, as well as the war of words, today we're going to examine the implications of the presidential and the congressional elections for climate change policy, both domestic and international. Now, as regular listeners know, in this podcast, I usually talk with well-informed people from academia, government, industry, or NGOs. But as I wrote in my blog last week, I worry that advocates are likely to engage in wishful thinking when making predictions about the next administration's climate policy initiatives. It's better for this purpose that I talk with people who are knowledgeable, but make it their business to examine such questions objectively. I'm talking about professional journalists, and not ones from the opinion pages, but rather reporters. So today I'm delighted to welcome someone whom I greatly respect and whom I've had the pleasure of working from my perch in academia for many years, Coral Davenport, who covers energy and environmental policy for the New York Times from the newspaper's Washington Bureau. Coral, welcome to Environmental Insights. Hi, it's great to be with you, Rob. It'll be fun to have the tables turned with you interviewing me. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, I'm very interested to hear your insights about climate change policy in the wake of the recent election. But we, before we talk about that, what I always like to do is to go back to understand how you came to be where you are. So tell me first, where did you grow up? Uh, well, th- that's a complicated answer. My dad was a foreign service officer. So I, I grew up all over the world. Um, my dad's first post was in Seoul, Korea. Um, so I lived there through, uh, through first grade and then, um, moved kind of popped, uh, bobbed back and forth around the world between, um, the Washington DC area when he worked at the state department. Um, mm-hmm. I went, I, we lived in Japan for several years. Um, and I went to high school in Athens, Greece. Um, so I'm sort of partly a native Washington DC area person and partly, a um, you know, all over the world person. But from Athens, Greece, for high school, you wound up at Smith College. So how yes. did that occur? Um, I My first priority, I think, um, for going to school, having grown up around the world, um, was it really needed to look right? 
my image of what college was supposed to look like uh, was probably formed by a combination of Dead Poet Society and J.D. Salinger. <laughs> um, and so that was that had a lot to do with with what with why I made my choice. And I, I knew and, my, and my, my parents had both gone to school in New England and um, and, and I just I just kind of fell in love with Smith and it, it definitely ended up being the right place for me. So I definitely wanted, um, you know, the small the small New England liberal arts experience. So Smith College certainly fits that bill. Now you studied yeah. English literature there, which is not a surprise. Um, so what was your first job out of school? I was not on my school paper, um, but my senior year I started freelancing um, for the local paper, the Daily Hampshire Gazette, uh, covering mm -hmm. Western Mass, um, the longest continuously published newspaper in the US. Um, and uh, I thought that I would just kind of freelance. And so and so they and they they ended up um, hiring me um, to cover kind of one of the Massachusetts Hill towns. And I thought I was just gonna do that for a year or so and then go to graduate school mm -hmm. and uh, you know, study complet. And I thought I was gonna go to Harvard. Mm -hmm. um, but I fell completely in love with newspaper reporting, probably my first week on on the job when, um, I went to cover um, a selectman's meeting, and you in Massachusetts know what those are. Mm -hmm. um, and um, one of the constituents of the town was so angry about um, a new zoning ordinance that she she got up and she started yelling and she picked up an antique cash register that was sitting in the corner of, of, of the room and clocked um, the main selectman. His name was Johnny Michkowski on the head. Wow. Um, which led into this crazy brawl. So I wrote about it and I think it went on page one. And after that, I was hooked. Uh, I can imagine. <laughs> yes, that was so, so um, it just became, and it just was so much fun. And actually in that job, I ended up, I stayed at that paper for about two years. So much of what I covered, and I didn't understand that I would be getting into this, was, was, helped inform the kind of how I understand my job. There was, there were huge stories about um, land use and property mm -hmm. use and development. There was a big story. This was, you know, more than 20 years ago, but you might remember it. Um, they wanted to build this big development of McMansions on the um, Mount Holyoke range, which right. is, which is, you know, very important sort of in, in Massachusetts history. It's been painted and written about by a lot of the important New England poets and scholars and writers. And, um, and, and sort of the uprising about that. And I remember actually, I profiled the developer who wanted to do it. And I, I profiled him as sort of like a wannabe Donald Trump. Um, and so the, the fight over what people do with their land and their property and that sort of the value, the value, the monetary value of the environment um, and, and sort of the intensity that people feel about their right to be able to do with what they do with their land and why, um, ended up being sort of a big theme of, of what I wrote about a lot. And, 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 and I wrote about that kind of this small town that was being transformed from this old farming town to basically, you know, all Walmarts, all right. McMansions. Um, you know, I kind of watched that happen. And um, so that surprisingly still really informs um, the way, you know, it, it, that, that helped to sort of open my eyes to um, writing about, land and environment and the way people think about their property and individual rights. Um, all those things are themes mm -hmm. um, that still inform what I do. Right. Now, for, according to your bio anyway, you began covering the environmental beat in depth in 2006, reporting first for Congressional Quarterly, then Politico, 
and then the National Journal, which is where you were when you and I first spoke, as I recall. How did you move from the Daily Hampshire Gazette to Congressional Quarterly and then begin to focus on environment and energy? Um, after the, the Gazette, I actually moved back abroad. Um, I went to Greece, um, mm-hmm. you know, where I'd been in high school. I freelanced for a few years. And um, then I had to come back to the States where both my parents were ill um, and I needed to quit work and live with them and help them. And they, mm-hmm. they were both in DC um, and I knew I needed to get a job in DC. I had to stay in Washington to help them. And I didn't know anything about what, nothing, nothing about Washington, nothing about policy, mm-hmm. nothing about the Hill. And um, I got a, a fellowship at American University that was basically for journalists to learn all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned, like I actually took a class um, from a lobbyist who later ended up being indicted um, on, on how to lobby. Um, I, I went to the Hill, I sat on hearing, I sat in on hearings and that sort of, and, and from that fellowship, I ended up getting a job at Congressional Quarterly. And the way I got into energy policy and climate policy was kind of the year that I was, you know, getting steeped in learning, um, about policy was 2005. And you know, Rob, that that was a mm-hmm. really important year for energy right. and climate policy for two reasons. The reason that your your most of your listeners will remember is that that was the year of Hurricane Katrina, and that was a moment that really blasted the idea not of of climate change, sort of the impact, the way in which climate change really could be worsening hurricanes um, onto the front pages, and also um, when Katrina knocked out um, the oil the oil supply in the Gulf and 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 gasoline prices jacked up. That was a really powerful moment to me. And the other thing that happened in 2005, of course, was passage of the 2005 Energy Policy Act, which was mm-hmm. one of the last kind of sweeping, comprehensive, big pieces of energy legislation that has really gotten through this Congress. And Indeed. so those were, when I was learning about policy, those were sort of the things that woke me up and made me think, oh my God, this is, first of all, this is going to be the most important story of the 20th century, 21st century. And second, Oh my God! This you know, climate change is going to be this big story, and and the solution to climate change and what you do about it will totally transform our economy and everything you know, the, everything about how our economy has been built for the last hundred years is going to have to completely change, and it's all going to come from policy, and it's gonna it's going to be so disruptive and so fraught and have so many fun, sexy political battles that will sort of be like clocking the selectman on the head with anti-catch register. Like, you know, this is a story where I want to be. So that's how I, that's how I got the job at CQ. And, um, you know, the rest is history. I've, I've been, I've been in love with my beat ever since. And I came to the times, um, seven years ago, just about coming in 2013. Yeah. 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 Now let's, let's turn now, now we've gotten up to the point of where you are, and since you've been at the Times since 2013, um, to turn to the issues that we're facing. You know, in most national elections, um, since the beginning of what I would consider meaningful environmental policy in the United States in 1970 or so, environment in national elections has been at most a second tier issue for voters, if not really a third tier issue. But at least before this November 3rd election took place, it did appear that it was different this time, that uh, climate policy in particular was important. But what I'm interested to know is what about post-election? That is, do you have a sense or better yet, any evidence uh, or sources who have indicated 
how voters' views on environment, energy, and in particular climate change actually affected the election, if at all? Um, so I'm really glad that you drew that distinction. Absolutely, this is the first presidential election where climate change emerged as a top tier issue. And a lot of that was because Biden as a candidate chose to do that. He chose to bring it up um, in a way that no other candidate ever has. Um, and so that was very new. Part of the reason Obama never did that is his advisor said, don't bring it up, don't bring it up um, at the conventions, don't bring it up in ads, this is not a winning issue. Um, and so it is clear that the political calculus had changed on that. Um, you know, that the, that the campaign advisor saw it as something that would at least not drive away voters and could, could attract and excite other voters. At the end of the day, you know, I think this election was about COVID, the economy and Trump. Right. I think that is right. So let's get to the heart of the matter, you know, and, and that is what are the impacts of the election going to be on the path of climate change policy over the next two to four years. And that could be assuming the Democrats do or do not take control of the Senate. I want to begin with the international dimensions of climate change policy, and then we'll turn to uh, the domestic. Uh, in other words, the Paris Agreement. So clearly on January 20th or a day later, um, President Biden will submit the paperwork to the United Nations on the Paris Agreement. 30 days later, the U.S. will be a party again, but that's the easy part. The tough part is the U.S. target and the means of achieving it, the so-called nationally determined contribution. So my question for you is, do you think this administration can produce a nationally determined contribution that's sufficiently ambitious to satisfy U.S. green groups and the left Democrats in the House of Representatives, for that matter, and please the international community, and also be credible. That is truly achievable with reasonably anticipated policy actions that the administration can put in place. No. <laughs> um, I don't think that they can produce something that will satisfy all those groups and be internationally credible, but I think they are going to do the best they possibly can. Um, yeah, the U.S. has a long way to go, as you know, Rob, to, to build back um, its credibility on the world stage on climate. And I think that the Biden administration will be received with open arms in the inter in the international climate community. Um, and I and I think that the Biden administration, I know from interviewing the people in the transition and the campaign, um, anticipates from day one starting to move forward aggressively with executive authority to put back in place um, at least some of the big um, climate regulations that the Trump administration rolled back. Um, the expectation is where they can, they're going to put rules back in place and strengthen them and add new elements to them and find new ways to sort of embed climate policy across the executive branch. And I think that that will be seen and understood um, as authentic, um, as, you know, this, this president really is going to do everything he can, at least with the lever of executive power. Um, the problem is that, you know, and people in the international community say this, um, absent passage of pretty significant legislation, if there's not a new law that will stick, you know, the U.S. is just not going to have the credibility that it did that Obama really, really had to fight for when forging the Paris Agreement. You know, I've talked to people in the international community say, look, yes, 
we love that Biden is prioritizing this, but you know, you could have another another president could come in and make it all go away again. President, you know, Trump is talking about running for president again. So let me be specific on what you were just saying, and that is, you said it sounded like you're saying so significant climate legislation is not uh, feasible. That the Biden Harris Climate Action Plan, two trillion dollars over four years, all electricity carbon free within 15 years, that's not feasible as legislation. Um, I would agree, and and if you don't mind, I'll point out that it's probably infeasible, at least in my mind, whether or not Democrats take control of the Senate. If they have a one-vote majority with the tie breaking by the vice president, I don't see that as bringing that legislation into feasibility, considering the fact that the Obama administration, with 59 votes in the Senate, was unable to move the Waxman-Markey bill into the Senate for a successful vote. Um, Am I being too... Am I being excessively cynical in that regard? No, you're being completely realistic. Um, oh. I will tell you one thing that I have been hearing, and the reason that I am paying more attention to this is this is something I've been hearing from Republican fossil fuel lobbyists mm-hmm. who say, um, if 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 Democrats were to, to get the majority, a tiny little squeaky one vote one vote majority. Um, Something that's not completely off the table, if it were crafted in a way that gave Republicans, particularly from coal states, a lot of what they wanted, would be um, a clean energy standard. Well, what is mm-hmm. that? Um, right. You know, that would be a mandate that some percentage of the of U.S. electricity be be produced or generated from zero zero carbon sources. Um, wind, solar, and pro- probably nuclear. So maybe a, mm-hmm. a 15 or 20% clean energy standard. That has, as, as you know, Rob, some version of that has actually passed uh, the House and the Senate different times over the, over the past decade with bipartisan support. But um, wasn't that more possible with Lisa Murkowski running the committee in the Senate than with uh, Senator Barroso now, now taking over? Yes, yes. Um, so Barroso is very interesting in this space. Um, and here's why, as, as you may or may not know, um, his home, Barrasso, of course, represents, uh, Wyoming, the largest coal producing state, mm-hmm. um, in the U S. And so that kind of makes it seem like why on earth would he, um, in any way endorse legislation that is basically designed to, to, to slowly, to start to push out coal. Um, also in Wyoming is this giant carbon capture and sequestration facility Right. That Barrasso has has really pushed a lot of legislation to get money for carbon capture and sequestration, to get incentives. Um, if there were a clean energy standard that had a lot of incentives and a lot, you know, a lot of stuff for carbon capture and sequestra- sequestration, um, plus sort of a lot of provisions to to help transition coal. Um, mm-hmm. And and it allowed electric utilities to include nuclear power to, to be counted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you could get a John Barrasso to the table on that, and I think that you could get a Lindsey Graham to the table on that. So um, bipartisan climate legislation in the Senate is possible with healthy dose of tax incentives, which we otherwise call subsidies, for wind and solar, carbon capture and storage, and also some kind of program for nuclear. 
Is that yeah. right? I mean, I, I would say that there is, a, you know, some a, a bipartisan conversation to be had about that. Yeah. At, at yeah. the end of the day, right. it's always really hard when you're counting votes. And I, um, but right. the reason that I listen to this is that it is Republicans who have said, you know, this is something we could play ball on. It's also, I mean, the other, the other, the Republican who matters most of all is Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, who's from a coal state of Kentucky. And if he decides that it ain't going to happen, um, I don't think it will. Right. So. Let, let's put aside climate legislation for a moment and think about other legislation that has greenhouse gas emissions impacts, two types, economic stimulus and infrastructure. What, what are the prospects with either of those to have it, to have a green tinge in the economic stimulus and a green tinge in the infrastructure? Deep green, lots of green. Uh, green environmentally and green money. So the first thing out the gate um, in the next in in the new administrations is is pretty clearly going to be um, a large COVID economic relief package. And mm-hmm. already um, the transition is working to get as much is it, basically working to echo um, and expand upon what Obama did at the beginning of his first term. He came in and they did you know. Uh, uh, um, a financial crisis relief package, the stimulus package, um, that was $787 billion. And I think it included about 42 to $57 billion um, for solar, wind, um, and, you know, energy efficiency, right. all kinds of green infrastructure, um, which to this day stands as sort of like the single largest expenditure um, that the federal government has made on those kinds of things all in one shot. Mm-hmm. So the expectation mm-hmm. is to see something like that probably double, triple those numbers. Um, that is will almost surely be a big part of, of, of uh, a COVID relief package. And then you brought up infrastructure. We're expected to see an infrastructure bill pretty soon. That too is expected to see certainly a lot of money for trains. Um, you know, Joe, Joe Biden's uh, personal... Um, green infrastructure that is near and dear to him. But um, I mean, his his campaign proposal included, I think it was um, construction of uh, half a million um, electric vehicle charging stations across the country. I might be wrong on that number. And certainly upgrading the electricity grid. Upgrading the grid, but um, a big push. Um, one idea that I've heard is the idea of creating electric vehicle corridors across the country. So you would have spaced out electric vehicle charging stations so that, right. um, you know, you could drive across, you knew, you you would know that you could drive safely across the country. So all of that is expected to be um, definitely a big part of an infrastructure. And there's an expectation that there will be climate, environment, um, energy efficiency, green provisions baked into all, you know, everything else that goes through. If there's, if there's, they'll update the tax package. Um, That will definitely include extensions for tax, for wind and solar tax credits. Um, Spending, you know, regular spending bills, we'll see it. Um, When they do a farm bill, we'll expect to see kind of a lot of climate green provisions and that. They're going to try to tuck it in wherever they can. Coral, given all the political challenges we've been talking about for climate legislation, there's clearly going to be interest in approaches that can be taken unilaterally by the new administration. That is so-called regulatory approaches, including both executive orders, Oval Office directives, and more difficult rulemakings. My concern, which is perhaps misplaced, is that 
such rulemakings are going to be much harder for the Biden administration than they were for the Obama administration because of increased court challenges and successful ones. I mean, Trump has appointed 220 federal judges, and more importantly, the Supreme Court now has the 6-3 conservative majority, which in particular seems to favor a literal reading of statutes, less, less, less flexibility given to the agencies to interpret the statutes in innovative ways, such as concluding that the Clean Air Act article that focuses on localized air pollution can apply to CO2 and climate change. I've also heard some legal scholars say that the Chevron doctrine of deference to agencies' interpretations may itself even be overturned. Am I once again being excessively pessimistic, Coral? Not at all, Rob. I think um, a a lot of people that I've talked to have said um, another one of um, sort of the most profound legacies of of the Trump administration will be the judiciary, will be the fact that there is this much more um, you know, there's this more conservative Supreme Court, and as you say, more conservative justices all the way th- all the way through the federal judiciary. So, you know, when Obama tried to do some of these rulemakings, um, th- th- these uh, these climate rulemakings, there were signs even then that they that they might not have been held up by the Supreme Court, which was conservative, but not as conservative as it is now. And so, I think that. On some of them, um, we will actually see a Biden administration being even more cautious and more limited than Obama was. And there's there's two big climate rules um, that I'm thinking of when 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 considering you know what what will they use executive authority to to reimpose with rules. Um, the first one is the rule, and this was the this was the biggest rule that Obama did on climate change. Um, the rule on fuel economy it, it increased corporate average fuel economy, which would have had the result of uh, dramatically decreasing CO2 emissions from vehicles, which are the largest source of uh, of CO2. That rulemaking, and, and Trump Trump almost, he didn't eliminate it, but he rolled it so far back that it essentially it basically canceled it out. Um, that rulemaking, we do expect to see a Biden administration come in and reinstate very quickly, probably uh, with some new, stronger terms. Um, that one is actually pretty straightforward. Um, the federal government has imposed fuel economy standards for decades. And, and I, I don't think it's ever been questioned that it has the legal authority to do that. Um, there was a lot of opposition from industry, um, from the auto industry, back when the Obama administration first put it in place. Um, but some of that has changed in the decades since. Some of the major auto mm-hmm. companies, um, including Ford, have actually come out in favor of of somewhat increased fuel economy standards. Um, technology is very different from, from where it was 10 years mm-hmm. ago. I think the, some of the car companies will say, well, this is, this is not as hard to meet as we once thought. Um, so that rulemaking, I think, they, pr- they probably will just be able to use executive authority and put it back in place. Um, the other major Obama climate rule, this is the rule known as the Clean Power Plan. Um, right. I think that that will be much harder, much more legally difficult um, so that, of course, was um, the Obama rule that was aimed at cutting emissions from coal-fired power plants or, or power plants generally. That was That's the second largest source of emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that rule was written was a very creative, um, unprecedented interpretation of the Clean Air Act. And that was understood at the time. Instead of just saying, you know, power plants need to pollute less, really that rule was designed to fundamental, to, to cause states to fundamentally reshape our entire electricity sector, shutting down coal plants, 
building new wind and solar, creating statewide cap and trade. It was very transformational and it gave the agency, the EPA, a lot, so much, so much power and authority. Um, and that that rule was um, given a stay by the previous Supreme Court. Um, Justice Roberts looked at it right. and said, this rule is... So the fate of this rule is so legally uncertain. We're going to say you can't even implement it until it's until you know it finally comes before us and and is resolved. So the current more conservative Supreme Court is just very unlikely to look sympathetically on this. And so I think for power plants, um, the Biden administration is going to look at that Obama rule and say. This is we cannot try to do that again. We will have to try to do something much more narrow and modest, um, not something that would get at a creative interpretation of the law that would transform the electricity sector. And so something that might be could could be upheld by the Supreme Court, but would be would have a much smaller take a much smaller bite um, out of emissions and would not kind of have that big transformative effect. Right. Creative interpretations of existing statutes just may not be possible. Mm -hmm. So um, lastly, there is a lot of talk um, about a so-called whole of government uh, approach. Um, my question is, is there any evidence that you've heard of what it will actually accomplish in terms of actual emissions reductions? Well, so um, we're definitely seeing and I, I'm talking to folks in the transition saying, Look, you know, we we are looking to to put people who care about climate change all across the government in the Defense Department, in the Justice Department, um, in transportation, in agriculture, uh, in Treasury, in financial regulation. Um, and, you know, the, the point of your question is, is right. You know, that's a, that that can be a good thing. But what does it mean in terms of like, is that going to get emission? You know, is that going to get the U.S. to zero emissions by in, in 30 years? Um, the answer is probably no, um, but but it can have some substantive impact. Um, and again, it could be in the form of rulemakings. One such example would be, um, you know, if you if you put in place financial regulators who are sort of given a charge, use financial regulations on Wall Street in a way to force companies. Um, to be more accountable to their climate impact. Um, These one are disclosure rule, requirements. Right. So, th so this is, we're, ex we're expecting um, a very early rule to be from the Securities and Exchange Commission that would mm -hmm. require firms to disclose their financial risk to shareholders. Right. Um, and this is the kind of thing where if shareholders, in theory, if this is done really well, and I think it will be very hard to do well, but shareholders could see, well, these kinds of climate risks, whether, you know, property or, or factories that are exposed to sea level rise or, you know, a lot of investments in fossil fuels that, you know, may end up being sunk costs further out. Shareholders might say, well, maybe that's more risk than I would like and I'll put my money elsewhere. And that's a way to start to shift the financial sector, not because companies want to be seen as green, but because the money isn't there. Um, so I think that is something that if it's done really rigorously and well, um, could have an impact, but, um, no, without, I mean, absent, you know, a bunch of really absent a law or some very strong regulations, um, those kinds of changes alone will not add up to reducing emissions from the power sector in 15 years and from the entire economy in, in 30 years. Um, I don't see a path to getting those numbers 
from 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 all this, but it it tilts you a little more in that direction. Right, and hope springs eternal. So, <laughs> so um, before we go, there is one other thing I'd really like to ask you about coral. You know, we we've witnessed. Um, quite dramatic rises in youth movements of climate activism, principally in Europe and the United States, and mainly in 2019 before the pandemic struck. Of course, a question in my mind is whether or not this youth activism for climate change is a cohort effect or an age effect. As these people get older, do they get more conservative, or is this something about youth that is going to carry right through? What's your reaction to these youth movements of climate activism that we've been seeing? I mean, the, the first reaction that I had when we start when we started seeing it spread out, um, beyond my, I, I was initially cynical, um, as I always am. Um, but as it grew so substantially, and as, as the Sunrise Movement in particular, g- started to gain real political clout, um, and, and that's really fueled by young people um, and 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 was able to sort of force the Biden campaign's hand to change to change their policies. Um, I started paying more attention. Um, you know, I do I do think that one thing that is that is different and that is significant um, and that is driving this is that this is the first generation of people to grow up on an already climate changed planet. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they are already, they will not know life without climate damage. Um, this used to be, you know, I, th- I think one reason why we haven't seen meaningful policy on climate for so long is that it was always something that, you know, was going to affect people generations away. It was going to affect your kids and grandkids. Um, and it was easier to kick the can. So these are the people who are living it. And for that reason, um, maybe it will stay. Um, I mean, I think that that really is sort of, you know, fundamentally one of the biggest differences. Um, it's not something that this is, this is not an issue that they will have to fix for their kids. Um, you know, I think that they'll see that this is something that is, hurting us in our lives right now and will will be much worse for our kids but that that we are living now and that um i I think that is significant in in the political dynamic and and also when when your son is old enough to start primary school when when he's in first grade i think you and he will discover that they're talking about climate change in the classroom. God knows that wasn't the case when I was in primary school. And when my children who are now in their twenties were in primary school, that was not the case. So things are really changing in terms of education of youth in this regard as well. Absolutely, yes. Um, and you know, I, I think about this obviously um, from, from the perspective of, of a mom whose kid will never know um, a, a, a planet that has not been afflicted by climate change. Um, he will not see um, the coral that I am named after because it has already been bleached by a warming and more acidic Pacific ocean. So that's there now. Um, and, and I will have to explain that to him and he will, you know, he'll experience that at a pretty young age. Um, so I, I think that that, I think that that has an impact on on how this generation is going to address this, even as they, you know, e- even even as the uh, you know passionate advocacy of youth fades, um, 
this is going to be something, you know, people, people go into policy because of things that affected them when they were kids. If they yes. had a parent who died of cancer, they, they mm -hmm. have strong views on health policy. So, you know, they, they grow up to have strong views on health policy. So I, I think, I think this may be something more that, 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 that people feel from their lived experience more than just ideological passion. Yes. And, and I certainly see it. I'll tell you in, in terms of uh, Harvard students, uh, each succeeding year, the level of interest among the students, the demand for courses on climate change, in my case, climate change economics, but across the board, science, all aspects of climate change, the demand increases uh, every year. We're, we're certainly seeing it in the universities. So with that, I want to bring things to a close and thank you so much, Coral, for taking time to join us today. You're great. So thanks again to our guest, Coral Davenport who covers energy and environmental policy for the New York Times. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, conversations on policy and practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.com dot hks dot harvard dot edu